Hello and welcome to the first episode of Design for Change. I'm Stefan, and for today's conversation, I was joined by Ritvi Kushu, who talked to me about different understandings of what design is, the role of museums and their link to material culture, as well as the effects of colonialism in design. But before I get into too much detail already, I'd say let's roll the intro. We have Plastic to have a part of daily life. Numbers on the sea levels will rise in the next 30 years by the we same amount as they did in the last 100 years. Still to this day, the United fears. States will withdraw from the Paris Climate what Accord. Can we do? What can we do that we're not already? What can we do? This is this is welcome, 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 welcome to the design, design, design for change. I'm really curious of how you got into design, what journey did you take? Yeah, um, I mean, I think my fascination with design began a really long time ago. Um, my father, when I was young, uh, when I was still a kid, he used to buy for me and my sister these books on the 100 greatest inventors, the 100 greatest scientists, the 100 greatest uh, explorers, sportsmen, and these kind of books. And uh, yeah, I used to read these books as my pastime. And yeah, what each of these um, people, right, like these um, yeah, explorers, adventurers, sportsmen, scientists, inventors had in common was this, this uh, it, it always felt like they were on an endeavor for, of, of like human experience, you know, trying to maximize it or trying to understand it or trying to deepen it. And, and so that began as my fascination for like human experience and then when I was in eighth grade or something my father showed me this uh, like a newspaper article on a product designer in India named Michael Foley and um, I was really fascinated by this one article and I cut this clip out and put this in my in my uh, study room and um, yeah I think it began there when I was in eighth grade and then I went to uh, my bachelor's, where I did something completely different, where I studied uh, art history and contemporary art practices. I studied philosophy, um, theory, uh, all sorts of different mediums of creative expression. And it kind of opened everything up for me also further. Uh, but yeah, I would say that these are my, the like the origins of where um, I began being fascinated with design and design practice and material culture and its relationship to human experience, you know? And afterwards, you went on to study. Did you then go into product design right away or...? Yeah. So it's tricky. I never actually studied design until I came to do my master's in the Netherlands. What I did uh, was art history in my bachelor's, something on... Like it was a kind of experimental course, you know, at an art academy. Uh, between art history, contemporary art practice, and uh, philosophy, I would say. And that was in India? And that was in India, yeah. And um, yeah, it kind of opened the world um, up in terms of creative practice and showed me just how wide a variety or palette of creative expression can be. Here, do you now feel like a designer after all? Um. It's very tricky, I think, this question, because of what it implies to do design. Um, I think it's important and it often gets overlooked, right? What is design? 
and where does it come from and what worlds does design belong to and so I don't know if I'm a designer or if that's even a good word to describe my creative practice but but for the sake of this conversation yes I do feel like a designer and I do feel like a storyteller and a writer and a researcher and these many things but that's already interesting that we all I think have different definitions or understanding of what a quote-unquote designer is but it's nice that you already mentioned that you have all these side titles that you call yourself and it also shows how wide the field of design actually goes it's not just about making things it's about questioning as well and learning and uh, connecting right how do these different roles uh, that you see yourself in uh, contribute to your recent project now the criminal tribes I think because we were in an art academy and not at a technical university, there were some liberties afforded to us as quote-unquote designers, right? And um, we were given more conceptual freedom and theoretical freedom and I, I would say academic rigor, right? Because we were doing design from the arts, from the humanities, Whereas a technical design student would be doing design from engineering or yeah. the sciences, or industry, hard sciences yeah. or industry. So this allowed us to develop a certain kind of rigor for, for um, philosophical inquiry. And design became, has become for me a, a, a means of thinking and a means of reflecting, a means of emoting and a means of just questioning, interrogating, investigating. And so, for instance, I ask, when I came to the Netherlands, what, what indeed shapes the ways that we design? What are the knowledges that inform design practice? From what cultural attitudes do we do design? Like, for instance, what forms our perception or the ways that we interact with the material? What allows us to think that this stainless steel bottle is just an object, is a stainless steel object? Clearly, our interpretation and our interaction with the world is both culturally and historically formed, right? How is it that these perceptions of the real are formed? And how do they, in turn, influence the way we do design? And how does that, in turn, influence the way we experience the real? I began noticing these differences in material culture coming from uh, India and arriving in the Netherlands, of course. So take, for instance, the museum, right? A museum is, is, is such a site where uh, material culture is formed and is such a mirror onto our societies, right? So my project began by looking at these museums, and namely ethnographic museums museums that have collected, that preserve and represent other worlds, other objects from other cosmologies, other objects with entirely different lives, both spiritual and political lives. The ethnographic museum as a site of where objects from other worlds have been collected, represented and preserved becomes an interesting place for us to reflect on design attitudes here in the West, in Europe, in the Netherlands, you know, becomes an opportunity for us to investigate what exactly are the attitudes 
that shape design practice today coming from the West. So my research began with a piece of found footage that I found in a British Film Institute's National Archives. It was a campaign film for the Salvation Army, the Salvation Army, which is a missionary organization. This campaign film was made in 1925 on the Salvation Army's work in India, Burma and Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka and Burma, which is now Myanmar. So in this, this campaign film, there is an excerpt within the film which I use as my point of departure into the story, the criminal tribes. And in this excerpt, you see a Salvation Army officer coercing an Indian woman to give up her traditional jewelry, to renounce the world of her materials, right? Her material world in order to take up Christianity, in order to become Christian. And the scene is quite tragic. It's still unclear to me whether this was rehearsed or whether this was um, authentic in its reactions, but it was such a tragic scene. And um, this is where I depart into this story. I mean, the, the woman does struggle with her giving up, right? It's, exactly. Uh, it's a very emotional moment for her as well. Yeah. And it does, to me, when I saw the footage, it does not look like she wants to actually give it up. It's very much the Salvation Army officer guiding her to, and in a way forcing her to give this up, right? Certainly. Like the jewelry or the ornaments, they, they and the woman giving up these ornaments is clearly an act of severing, is an act of amputation, is cutting off the material world of this woman. And and that's a violent act. In, yeah, and it's a terrifyingly tragic act. And so what I did was I traced these jewelries, these ornaments, and uh, I mean, with their style and their distinction, and found them in museum collections. Uh, across different museums. I, I found each of these pieces to be labeled unknown, unknown origins, uh, unknown artist or maker, unknown place of origin with a roughly estimated date and then with a physical description of the object. And what becomes clear to me when I was interacting with these objects in their digital archives is that the process of severing um, these jewelries, these ornaments from the woman and absorbing them into the museum collection, right, of an ethnographic museum. This is the process of, of decapitating these objects of their spiritual, political, historical, cultural lives, their emotional lives. And then suddenly they find themselves isolated in museum catalogs, presented in, 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 in blackness almost, under this cold white light described with words that uh, mean nothing to it, you know, in a surrounding that has no meaning to it. And for me, this, this, the, the whole phenomena of presenting, representing other worlds in this fashion is perverse because it comes from this perversion, right, of severing other people's worlds from them. And so I began to investigate into this a little more and found that the ways in which museums chose to represent these objects very deeply shape design practice today. And so much of my research is to unearth these kind of the historical um, 
colonial and imperial rooting of modern design practice. Yeah, what, are the, what is the philosophical basis for our design practices? And they mostly stem from the, you know, European Enlightenment period philosophies, Cartesianism, which is the man-nature divide, uh, mind-body divide, and uh, yeah, human exceptionalism. And this is terrifying for me because then this design does not speak to me or my people or where we come from. And it can't be a global thing. Yet it's somehow become a global practice, right? Design practice. Yet it's somehow become this global phenomena where students from Brazil and students from India and students from Bangladesh study the same design. Like, so what dominates design pe pedagogy clearly with its uh, em embedded Eurocentrism and anthropocentrism? So how do we begin to question what design is even used for or what design even is? And who gets a say? Who gets to negotiate the meaning of materials or the meaning of design practice or the meaning of materializing their own worlds? Who gets to materialize their own worlds? These were important questions I began asking with my work. Do you have a feeling or do you have the feeling that this is being addressed in the design community right now? I mean, you do mention that it seems like everybody's studying the same thing when, when we talk about design or focusing on uh, similar or the same things. But do you have a feeling that this is actually being acknowledged, that it's lacking the culture where you, from where you are? It, it both is and it isn't at the same time, you know? Um, of course, people in their pockets do very great things. But at large, I think um, it still requires a lot of work. And this brings me to, yeah, the, let's say, one of the core ideas in my work, which is that the imagination or the imaginary is a real site of contestation, a real site of struggle, a, a real site of war even, you know? In From the descriptions of... Uh, quote-unquote oriental objects in ethnographic museums to the ways that objects have been presented to the ways that objects are designed to the ways that objects are are migrating or like design objects and design values are migrating from Europe to the rest of the world in all of these ways there is something like an epistemic violence going on right and it's ongoing this dominance. And so this becomes, it, it becomes evident in the imagination. If, if you were to treat the imagination as an ecology for just to, um, for an instance, if the imagination was an ecology, my, my work argues that the imagination, like lands, like knowledges, like peoples, like languages, like cultures, like objects, The imagination too, the imaginary, also have been territories subject to colonial conquest and plunder and also imperial ruin. So how do we rescue the imagination? How do we, how do we uh, carve out a space and design dedicated to heal, you know, healing? And I mean of healing in a very different sense. I, I mean it in our communities, in, in civilizational healing also if I may say so. Yeah, it's a daunting task, but 
it's it's necessary right today in the kind of social political climate that we live in so yeah i don't think um this is being addressed enough and i don't think it's being addressed with a serious with it, with a seriousness and how did you approach it in your own work of addressing it yeah so i would consider that my my work largely is the research and the writings and the storytellings of what we just talked about well this is one story the criminal tribes uh, is one story of four different stories that i wrote um and each of these stories uh talks about the the severing of communities of ecologies of objects and of imaginations from our communities and uh, and asks how might we remember them you know how might we recall these severed figures uh, back in relation how do we thread them back in relation into our communities with us so the criminal tribes was one story of four and um, the design project that i did for my graduation i think is a sort of materialization is a form of reflecting and thinking with the stories that i'm writing and researching is of is a way of reflecting with the scholars that i'm referencing you know like rolando vasquez who has been a pillar in my research a major pillar decolonial thinkers like ahmed ansari arturo escobar sn balagangadhara maria lugones uh like these are these are pillars in my in in my thinking and in my design research so the design project became a way of reflecting with them with their voices and so um many questions that i ask in the design project are about restitution how might we remember uh, remembering is healing and how might we make sense of this and how might we critique the museum as an institution or the digital archive and its preservationist narratives you know uh, how might we care for objects within their ecologies both immaterial and material and um yeah so the criminal tribes was one of four stories and um i i really hope and i would like to take on this uh, storytelling or this research further because i really think i've i've just started i've just scratched the surface and there's a lot more work to be done and the materialization uh, yeah. of your work how did that yeah. look like i created a multimedia installation with this excerpt from the uh, colonial archive of the salvation of army officer and the indian woman uh, this was like a say central mantel piece to the work and the installation and what i did was i traced her jewelry and jewelry like hers well not her specific jewelry from that specific video but jewelry like hers and most often in digital archives that were so these objects were somehow rendered invisible and inaccessible to me right and our communities and so what i did was i tried to devise ways of bypassing the digital archive which became this firewall which inaccessibilized these objects from their communities so i 3d printed these um these jewelry pieces and then casted them in aluminum and then i casted them back in earth 
as a way to restitute these uh, uh, these jewelry pieces. And um, there's a performance of folk song and storytelling from the west of India um, that accompanied this work. So, your choice of material there. Can you yeah. or explain the process because you are you're making your casting with the uh, earth blocks you're pressing with the casting in aluminum was a way of materializing of um, bringing back a certain kind of permanence and and paying ode to this community and i found uh, by tracing her jewelry that she belonged to a nomadic community of silver workers in india that would travel between villages and uh, towns and communities, offering their artisanship, their craftsmanship. And so they were primarily silver workers. And so I wanted to cast that jewelry back in silver as a way of uh, almost feeling the closeness of the object back, you know, as a way of bringing these objects back. And um, this was a way of bringing back this, uh, these uh, severed uh, beings almost. But what I forgot to, what I didn't mention yet is that um, the story goes further from uh, uh, from this excerpt uh, and departs into the story of the Criminal Tribes Act in India, which was an act passed by the British Raj in 1871, which grouped several nomadic communities across India and labeled them as inherent criminals, as inborn criminals. And so the British Raj tied this with the logic of a caste system in India and said that people who belonged to the criminal tribes were born as criminals. And so it was their life way to be a criminal. And this allowed the British to, uh, uh, to engineer large portions of the Indian population to their benefit, right? So in 1891, I think the British Raj funded the Salvation Army to come to India and perform these large-scale social engineering projects of converting people to Christianity, of settling nomadic peoples into villages and extorting them, as in making them work in British industrial factories for low wage and becoming government servants or often even serve in the army, the British military. And so this was a way of engineering large populations of people and in in to a great extent ending their nomadic lifestyle and the life worlds that it enabled you know the kind of exchange information flows flows of artisanship flows of craft of knowledges of wisdom and you know to flow through the country in many sense these nomadic communities behaved as capillary uh, capillary systems you know in a land so, as vast as uh, western india so I chose to cast the, these jewelries back in earth as a way to uh, as a way to reference or slowly hint that these objects are misrepresented in museums, but instead lead uh, many lives, spiritual lives, emotional lives, and political lives. And this, the act, the performance of pressing these jewelry pieces back in earth is accompanied with a folk song from western india that evokes the the cosmology of these people you know the folk song speaks about how the body is is nothing but unbaked earth that uh, within this body which is unbaked earth which is an unbaked earthen vessel 
it flows the rivers flows the mountains flows the lands flows all of this in this vessel that is the unbaked earth and so the earth or earth has a central role in their cosmology and that has been severed you know by the settling of them into villages and i tried to do this with the uh, both the performance of pressing these um, jewelry pieces back in earth and accompanying them with storytelling and this folk song you mentioned your work with the archives of museums digital archives physical archives while you were talking about this immediately having grown up uh, in western europe um I know about all these museums that have all these stolen artifacts. How do you see the role of the museums and how they are handling this? Are they aware that they are showing stolen artifacts that caused a lot of pain, still cause a lot of pain, that the way they present them are severed from their cultural meaning or story, history? Yeah, so I think there's a lot, a lot of work going into this, into museum studies and um Uh, yeah, curation and ethnographic studies. There's a lot of lot of people studying this and doing good work in this space. Museums are trying to ask these questions. I mean, uh, people. This space is now heavily contested, right? Yeah, and it can't not be. So it is happening. Like a lot of developments are happening. Yeah, but I, I think there needs to be a like a stronger link tethering museums and the material cultures that they've helped shape to a great deal. Uh, it, it needs to be strongly linked to the ways that we do design, like design culture and the museum is often seen uh, to be separate things. But this is one big umbrella of material culture and shaping the the culture pumping machine. And so I think that link needs to be more visible, visibly highlighted. And it is happening, I think, slowly. People are doing good work. So it is hopeful. There's a lot of good work happening. As a way to maybe end today's conversation, you just uh, used the word hopeful. What in your practice, but looking at the creative community at large, what gives you hope? For the future, what gives you hope for the uh, that we can actually address and possibly solve um, uh, these ecological and societal challenges that we face? What what brings me hope is that more people today are willing to listen, and more people are building a capacity to respect and to be compassionate and to understand one another, and that for me is important because it means that more people turn their eyes and ears towards those voices and beings that have been overlooked, right, or oppressed, and that have suffered, that have been outcast and severed from communities, from civilizations. And um, more often than not, I think these um, voices and these beings have a lot to offer, an offer in kindness, an offer in compassion and wisdom. So for me, this is a movement that brings tremendous hope. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out Riedwig's work via the links in the show notes and subscribe to the podcast on Instagram.